Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 27 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. A belated Happy New Year to all our listeners. In this episode, I discuss FOI developments and decisions during September and December 2011. This includes Commissioner and Tribunal decisions on information held in private emails, Section 11 and providing summaries, vexatious requests, disclosure of empty property information, the qualified person's opinion under Section 36, and disclosure of statistics. First of all, though, a quick review of recent developments in the world of transparency and FOI. On the 29th of September, the final version of the Code of Recommended Practice for Local Authorities on Data Transparency was published. The Code is published under the Local Government Planning and Land Act 1980, which gives the Secretary of State the power to issue a code about the publication of information by various organisations relating to the discharge of their functions. The Code calls on local authorities in England, together with the police, fire services and others, to shine a light on every part of their business by publishing information. The requirement to publish all items of expenditure over £500 is now formalised within the Code, with a clear message to businesses and sole traders that they should expect their payments to be put into the public domain. In addition, the salaries, job descriptions, responsibilities, budgets and staff numbers of all employees earning more than £58,200 also have to be published. The Code also requires the publication of an organisation chart, councillors' allowances and expenses, contracts and tenders, various policies and performance information, as well as data on the election process. The Code isn't a revolution in its current form. It's recommended practice, not required. It's not legally binding, although there is a power in the 1980 Act to make legally enforceable regulations. What's also concerning is that much of the Code's provisions with regards to the routine publication of statistical information is already covered under the Protection of Freedoms Bill's provisions relating to datasets. So why then the duplication? Is it another example of government departments not talking to each other? If you'd like to know more about the Protection of Freedoms Bill's dataset provisions, have a listen to episode 25 of this podcast. Section 5 of the Act allows additional organisations to be added to the list of public authorities by way of a ministerial order. The first such order, the Freedom of Information Designation as Public Authorities Order 2011, came into force on the 1st of November last year. It brings three organisations within the scope of FOI, namely the Association of Chief Police Officers, the Financial Ombudsman Service and the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service. There's nothing surprising about this as the decision had already been made by the previous Labour government. In January 2011, the government announced that 25 further bodies would be consulted with a view to adding them to the list of public authorities. But in addition, we now know, thanks to a request made by the Campaign for Freedom of Information, that the government is considering and will be consulting more organisations with a view to adding them to the list of public authorities. The list includes 150 awarding bodies, and over 200 harbour authorities. You can download this list from the Campaign for Freedom of Information website. 
This is in addition to housing associations and the Housing Corporation, which the Minister announced last year would also be consulted in 2012. At the moment, the Freedom of Information Act, according to Section 6 of the Act, also applies to a publicly owned company. This is any company which is wholly owned by any public authority listed in Schedule 1. But the definition in Section 6 will be amended by the Protection of Freedoms Bill, so that in the future, even companies which are wholly owned by more than one public sector organisation will be covered by the Act. The Ministry of Justice have recently produced a list of bodies that they believe are likely to be brought within the scope of the Act by the amendment. This includes companies running crematoria, parks and airports, as well as a number of shared purchasing and service companies. All organisations that work with or advise such bodies and companies should raise awareness of the Act now. If you need help in training, please get in touch. In September last year, it was widely reported that the Education Secretary, Michael Gove, and the Department for Education officials had, apparently routinely, used personal email accounts to discuss official, often controversial, Department of Education business. This was under the mistaken belief that such emails were not covered by FOI and so did not have to be disclosed if a request for that information was received. The Commissioner has now produced guidance on this topic which exposes this false belief. The first tier tribunal considered when information is held in the case of the British Union for Abolition of Vivisection and the Information Commissioner at Newcastle University back in 2010. We discussed this case in episode 25. It was about a request for project license information for carrying out tests on animals. The tribunal said that an authority cannot evade the requirements of the Act by having its information held on its behalf by some other person who is not a public authority. The Commissioner seems to have had regard to this case as well as other cases when he issued the guidance in December 2011. He advises that FOI applies to official information held in private email accounts when held on behalf of the public authority. This also includes text messages. There will be occasions on which, having searched its own systems, the public authority will be expected to ask employees or others, for example contractors, to search their personal email accounts for information described in an FOI request. The Commissioner says that public authorities should establish procedures for dealing with such situations and keep records of any private email account searches that they have requested. Other key points in the guidance include where a public authority has decided that a relevant individual's email account may include official information, which falls within the scope of the request and is not held elsewhere, it will need to ask that individual to search their account. Public authorities should also remind staff that deleting or concealing information with the intention of preventing its disclosure after a request has been received is a criminal offence under Section 77 of the Act. The Commissioner accepts, though, that in certain circumstances it may be necessary to use private email for public authority business. However, there should be a policy which clearly states that in these cases an authority's email address should be copied into the correspondence to ensure the completeness of the authority's records. Incidentally, Michael Gove recently said that he would not release his private emails until he received further advice. So watch this space. 
Section 11 of the Freedom of Information Act provides that an applicant may express a preference as to the way he or she wants information to be disclosed. This could be in the form of a summary or a precy. But the question arises, can this be used to ask a public authority for a summary of previously refused information, such that the summary does not contain any exempt information? In Pounder and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice, the Tribunal agreed with the Commissioner that the answer to this question is no. A requester is only entitled to information held. So if a summary document exists at the time of the request, then it is within the scope of the request and subject to the exemptions has to be disclosed. Otherwise, public authorities are not required to create or compile summaries so as to help the requester avoid exemptions. The tribunal said the provisions within section 111c come into play only once this prior question has been determined, namely, to what information is the requester entitled. The public authority must consider the scope of the request, identify information it holds within that scope, and apply exemptions as it sees fit. Only then must a section 11 preference be given where reasonably practical. If a summary is not held at the time of the request, then it doesn't have to be created. There is now a fair amount of jurisprudence on what constitutes a vexatious request under section 14. The Tribunal has previously approved the Information Commissioner's guidance, which was last updated in December 2008, and which states that if a public authority wants to deem a request as vexatious, it must make a reasonably strong case that it can answer yes to more than one of the following questions. Whether compliance would create a significant burden in terms of expense and distraction, whether the request was designed to cause disruption or annoyance, whether the request had the effect of harassing the public authority or its staff, whether the request could otherwise be fairly be characterised as obsessive or manifestly unreasonable, and whether the request had any serious purpose or value. Two recent decisions by differently constituted tribunals emphasise a common-sense and dictionary-led approach in preference to a checklist of tests. If you're interested, have a look at the tribunal decisions in Graham and the Information Commissioner and Ainsley and the Information Commissioner and Dorset County Council. It's also important to bear in mind that whilst the history and context between the applicant and the public authority can be taken into account when deciding what's vexatious, it's important not to cross the line between a vexatious request and a vexatious requester. Section 14 is about the former and not the latter. In Dransfield and the Information Commissioner, the tribunal ruled that too much emphasis was placed on the identity of the individual and not enough on the context of the request. The case crossed the line from treating the request as vexatious to treating the requester as vexatious. I don't think that this means that other FOI requests cannot be taken into account when deciding whether a particular request is vexatious. It just means that care must be taken. Remember, it's the request primarily which is vexatious, not the requester. Access to information about empty properties under the Freedom of Information Act has always been a contentious issue. On the one hand, local authorities holding such information claim that if it is released, the properties will be targeted by squatters, criminals and drug addicts. They claim that the information is exempt under Section 31, that disclosure would or would be likely to prejudice prevention or detection of crime. 
On the other hand, housing charities argue that it's unjust that there are thousands of people living on the streets just next to properties which they could easily and cheaply occupy. The charity Empty Homes says that whilst there are about 1.7 million families on waiting lists for social housing, there are 930,000 empty properties across the UK. There have been a number of decisions over the years by the Information Commissioner and the Tribunal on this issue. In England and London Borough of Bexley and the Information Commissioner, the Information Tribunal, as it was known then, reviewed the decision of the Commissioner to order Bexley Council to disclose details of all empty properties in its area, together with the reasons why the properties are empty and who owns them. The Tribunal ruled those properties owned by anyone other than individuals should be disclosed, together with details of ownership. Whilst it accepted that the Section 31 exemption was engaged, it ruled that the public interest in disclosure was greater. However, details of properties owned by individuals, the Tribunal said, should not be disclosed, as it was personal data and so exempt under Section 40. The Tribunal said disclosure of this information would be unfair to the individuals as their properties could be targeted by criminals and squatters. A more recent decision by the First Tier Tribunal in Voyas and the Information Commissioner and London Borough of Camden ordered Camden Council to disclose information about lists of empty properties meeting certain descriptions. The requester, a former member of the Advisory Service for Squatters, specifically excluded properties owned by individuals in the light of the Bexley decision. The tribunal found that whilst the Section 31 exemption was engaged, the public interest in bringing empty properties back into reuse was paramount. The key passage of the judgment emphasised the importance of real-life examples which the public could quote and which could be used to understand the empty properties issue. It said that it's put specific empty properties into the limelight and may be an added tool to incentivise owners to reuse their properties and would enable the general public to walk up to a void and see for themselves what is going on and whether it's being worked on or has been left in limbo. The government is not happy with this decision. Indeed, Grant Shapps, the housing minister, called it a squatter's roadmap. However, the tribunal has recognised the unfairness of the current system and the need to inform a debate of importance, especially in the current economic climate and with increased homelessness. My sources tell me that Camden Council is actually appealing this decision to the upper tribunal and the case is likely to be heard in April. So watch this space. Section 36 contains the only freedom of information exemption which requires a qualified person to give his or her opinion that disclosure of the requested information would have a prejudicial effect on the subject of the exemption. In other words, that it would inhibit free and frank advice, deliberations, or would otherwise prejudice the effective conduct of public affairs. The question arises as to whether the qualified person must give his or her opinion prior to the refusal notice being served in order for Section 36 to be engaged. In the case of Roberts and the Information Commissioner and the Department for Business, decided in 2009, the Tribunal held that because information could only be withheld if it was exempt at the time of the request, it followed that an opinion which was reached after the refusal notice had been served could not constitute a valid opinion for the purpose of Section 36. 
This approach was approved in Chief Constable of Surrey Police and the Information Commissioner, which we discussed in episode 23 of the FOI podcast. This issue was considered again in the case of William Thackeray and the Information Commissioner, where the requester asked the Home Office for information it holds about Scientology. The Tribunal asked, can the opinion of the qualified person be obtained after the 20 working day time limit, but before the conduct of the public authorities' internal review? In this case, the appellant argued that this delay undermined the reasonableness of that opinion. However, the tribunal said that the provision of the opinion by the internal review stage is still sufficient to engage section 36. The tribunal also considered whether the qualified person must give consideration to the actual disputed information before reaching his or her opinion. Government ministers often make such decisions based on submissions from civil servants rather than on the basis of actual consideration of the underlying material for themselves. The tribunal said that failure to inspect the disputed information will not, without more, render the opinion unreasonable. It is sufficient if it is shown that the qualified person's opinion was based on a proper understanding of the disputed information. Despite this decision, I would suggest that as a matter of good practice, public authorities should obtain the Section 36 opinion prior to the release of the refusal notice and ensure that the qualified person sees the disputed information. This will make the decision to claim the exemption much easier to defend. However, in the light of the Thackeray decision, failure to do so will not automatically render the opinion unreasonable. The Section 40 exemption often comes into play where public authorities receive requests for disclosure of statistics. There have been a number of decisions on this issue. The Commissioner has always maintained that truly anonymised statistics are not personal data and so Section 40 cannot be used to avoid disclosure. The test of whether statistics are truly anonymised is whether members of the public could identify the subjects by cross-referencing the statistics with information or knowledge already available to them or which could come into their possession in the future. This approach was supported in 2010 by the High Court in what is known as the Abortion Statistics Judgment. The title of the case is Department of Health and the Information Commissioner. This in turn examined the leading House of Lords decision on this subject, Common Services Agency and the Scottish Information Commissioner, which we discussed in episode 20. The High Court reasoning was recently applied by the First Tier Tribunal in Beckles and the Information Commissioner. Here the appellant asked Cambridge University for information on, amongst other things, the case settlement amounts rounded to some appropriate non-exact figure relating to four former employees. These were individuals who had been sacked and who had subsequently settled their employment tribunal case. The tribunal ruled that the requested information was personal data, the disclosure of which would be unfair and so exempt under Section 40. The question was whether the four individuals or any of them could be identified if the information requested were disclosed, even in approximated form. The tribunal said that identifiable means identifiable not just to the requester, but to any third party who might relate such information to his or her knowledge and experience. After all, under FOI, disclosure is to the public at large. In looking at identifiability, the tribunal took account of the fact that Cambridge University is made up of a large number of much smaller academic and collegiate communities. 
it's likely that a number of colleagues or friends would be aware that a particular individual settled a claim with the university within the timescale specified within the FOI request. They'd be aware of the general nature of that person's employment. This was a small group of claims in a relatively short period. In the form originally requested, it would be readily foreseeable that one or more of the four would or could be identified. The tribunal was also satisfied that no sensible rounding exercise could be performed without risking the disclosure of one or more identities. That concludes episode 27 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in April. Before then, you can always catch up on the latest developments in information law by attending one of my FOI update workshops or my web seminars. Both carry CPD points and details are available on our website www.actnow.org.uk If you want an internationally recognised qualification, why not do the ICEB Certificate in Freedom of Information? Our next course starts in March in Birmingham. ActNow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI or EIR requests and possible responses. Finally, don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Our Twitter name is at ActNowTraining, all one word. Until the next time, goodbye.